Chapter 1, The Tribal Knowledge Paradigm. Do we need a new paradigm? We believe that the ever-increasing speed of change and complexity is driving organizations beyond the effective limits of current corporate infrastructure and management methods. As Bill Gates puts it, business is performing at the speed of light. Is this sufficient reason to change? This may not be the root cause or it may not be the final straw, but it is an indicator that today's markets require a different look at what a successful management paradigm might be. How do you manage in such conditions? How do you get the bang for the buck that investors are demanding? And how do you do so with minimal disruption of your organization? Are we crazy to even ask such a question? Perhaps, but we think there is a very subtle but powerful way to accomplish this goal with minor change in how we manage companies. It is not based upon a feeling or a gut check, but hard evidence from over 150 engagements where all of these suggestions were tested. Further, when we look at the success of energy and fruit fusion programs at GE and Southwest Airlines, we are able to ask ourselves, how do our experiences relate with the initiatives of Jack Welch and Herb Keller? Although our pragmatic learning had their beginning in business operations turnaround, we came to understand the value of company-wide action with a sense of focused urgency. There's a footnote here indicating that this experience came from our work at Roper Industries, business turnaround 1987 to 88, and early war on waste clients 1985 to 1989. This paradigm evolved beyond just a hybrid of the workout program of Jack Welch and the wingding of Herb Kelleher. We engage corporate know-how by having employees identify and solve problems in a process and a structure that incubates innovation and best practice while reinforcing great employee morale. This initial phase, the war on waste, worked like this. In a six-week program, employees were asked to find $100,000 of waste as measured by its effect on the company's productivity, efficiency, or sales. It either made top-line revenues or costs. We made it challenging in that they couldn't spend more than $2,000 to fix the problem. As a business goal, 50 to 1 return is a pretty good deal. In fact, in an audit of our program, the actual results of 23 small businesses that participated, we were able to document a 38 to 1 return or 3,800% ROI for these projects. Now, that isn't the targeted 50 to 1 ratio of $100,000 of waste to its solution of $2,000, but it works for most investors. The byproducts of this phase after high ROI, are a better understanding and an amplification of the intangible asset know-how, as well as ferreting out roadblocks and bottlenecks to internal growth.
Those results were both typical and spectacular. We were able to see these results in all of our projects across a spectrum of businesses, machine shops, hospitals, doctor's offices, distribution businesses, continuous flow manufacturers, discrete manufacturers, and service businesses. It didn't make a difference what kind of business that we worked. The results were always the same. Spectacular. But then you have to ask why. Why did we get these results? Why did Jack Welch or Herb Kelleher get their results? We have struggled with this question for over 25 years. Then it hit us. We were dealing with the most fundamental of human needs, sense of purpose, sense of belonging, sense of accomplishment and respect. All of these programs had one thing in common. They were structured to incubate best practice and to deliver an opportunity for earned respect to all participants. Although respect is a one-way street, Earned respect is the premium in that it requires organizational best practices to create the work environment that incubates a highly motivated, productive, and continual learning workforce. In this context, we employ the term earned respect because it is a forcing function. Literally all employees have something to contribute and must be given the opportunity to earn respect for meaningful actions. The organizational best practices that applies here is that every employee or group understands what is expected, has the opportunity to affect results, has objective measures of performance, and gets appropriate feedback. Herb Kelleher's people at Southwest had the satisfaction that their CEO wanted them to enjoy their jobs, and he made it fun. If they made it fun for his customers, he would reward them both individually and as teams of service deliverers. He honored the people who made the customer experience at Southwest the most enjoyable. The individuals earned his respect but he also recognized that it was a team that made it all work. Jack Welch had a similar thing with his reward approach. You got to keep your job. He was a little rough on the troops, but they understood that GE's survival depended on their individual and team contributions to a specific workout project. Everyone contributed and earned his respect. In our War on Waste projects, people have told us over and over again that they love to work with other members of the team to get a project completed. They love the respect that they were shown from high-level managers. When they began working on follow-up projects after the initial efforts, managers and workers had a newfound respect for each other. We were pleased that we had found this commonality in literally all the various project initiatives that we have seen over the last 25 years. They contain the host of alphabetical engagements that we have seen or experienced. TQM, Total Quality Management. SIM, Computer Integrated 
management or manufacturing in some cases, Six Sigma, lean manufacturing, etc. But there was something missing here. We tried to continue the energy infusion with a range of initiatives that seemed to work. Unfortunately, few of our client engagements led to a fully changed company. When the consultants left, clients reverted to the old ineffective management paradigms. Few carried on to build a culture of continual improvement. So what was missing? We knew that broad engagement of know-how in focused, urgent action was not sufficient to sustain continual improvement. Sustained results require a management team with all members working from the same understanding of what is required to succeed. What was missing was a management paradigm that translated our pragmatic learnings into an understandable set of management guidelines and philosophies. In this context, we used tribal knowledge and know-how. In our definition, tribal knowledge or know-how is the collective wisdom of the organization. It is the sum of all the knowledge and capabilities. It is the knowledge used to deliver, to support, or to develop value for customers. But it is also all the knowledge that is wrong, imprecise, and useless. It is knowledge of the informal power structure and process of how things really work and how they ought to. It is the knowledge of who constrains the process and who facilitates it. It is the knowledge that is squirreled away by employees who need to protect their jobs by not sharing the information needed to do a job. This is part of the totality of the tribal knowledge. For example, it is the knowledge and experience of the assembler who won't tell others how he can put those two casings together when no one else can. That knowledge is his job security. But more importantly, it is the untapped knowledge that remains unused or abused. So how does this definition help us set the stage for a new paradigm? Well, it doesn't exactly, but it gives us an insight that was the tip-off to the basis of this new paradigm. Here is our basic observation. We noted that employees love the recognition resulting from work on what they perceive as meaningful project. But what really is going on is that all of the various initiative-type projects contribute in a positive way to increasing tribal knowledge of a company. The CEOs of our very successful projects paid attention to the employees and their projects and made sure that they were completed. When those initiatives were completed, they encouraged more ideas. Ultimately, the energy got drained from the CEOs as other activities redirected their efforts. The active leadership of know-how improvement waned. However, we observed that there was a major contribution to the company innovation portfolio from these projects. We also noted that about one out of six of these projects was a really big idea. In fact, 
we made people aware of the fact that we were on the alert for these big ideas. A big idea generated huge opportunity of over a hundred to one with a modest investment of no more than $10,000. These were big deals and somehow we needed to establish a process that would not only look for these big ideas, but we encouraged employees to be on the alert for them. They were in many cases, the company's next big disruptive innovation that gave it a leap over its competition. They were responsible for much of the internal growth achieved by our client companies. We realized that most of the ideas of our different initiatives were incremental innovation. They weren't the big disruptive innovations, but they made a significant contribution to the growth of company know-how. You could think of the ideas that we get in the war on waste as incremental innovation. They are $100,000 of waste that can be fixed for an investment of less than $2,000. These are the low-hanging fruit that we hear about, or the nuggets of gold that we kick around the business and fail to pick up. We see incremental innovation in specific product innovations as well. It is the remote lock on a car or the faster microprocessor in the semiconductor industry. It is an easier way to manage inventory or the setup reduction time of a machine shop. Incremental innovations are to be encouraged but few companies do. In fact, our observations are that initiatives that drive incremental innovation have a recurring history like those at GE. First, you had the workout program, then the TQM, and so forth. But they weren't serial initiatives not ingrained in the process. They were the exceptional moments of creativity that all employees loved. They were fleeting but exciting. Incremental innovation is the sandbox for streamlining organizations, optimizing the core business, and aligning business resources and processes with strategy. It is the crucible of learning and growth of know-how. However, there are very interesting low-hanging fruit that turn into disruptive innovation that create a quantum leap in performance for a company. We've put a definition here of disruptive innovation. It's basically the term is used to describe innovations that improve a product or service in unexpected radical new ways. In the auto industry, the minivan was a disruptive innovation. It took off as the single greatest innovation to serve the family transportation market. In the computer field, the PC was a major disruptive technology. In one of our clients, a researcher suggested an innovation that allowed a radical 75% cost reduction in the processing of DNA oligo segments for the genetics engineering researchers. This was a disruptive technology, an industry game changer. This development allowed the company to secure major contracts and disrupt the competition from these important research chemicals. We had to shield the researcher while he developed a pilot demonstration of his idea. It was then that the production model could be developed for maximum capture of market share. So what we see in the war on waste engagements 
are either incremental innovations or another category that we like to call the big idea. It may be the example above, or it may be any number of ideas that we've seen over the years. Peter Drucker gets more specific. He lays out four types of innovation. In fact, over the 25 years of our work, we have seen all four types of different innovations that he mentions. Incremental innovation, two, disruptive innovation, three, organizational innovation, and finally, new business innovations. These are all the ways that Peter Drucker saw innovation to manifest itself in businesses. We could get into more detail on them, but it really isn't necessary. The big ideas can be all four types noted, but they are usually the last three. We believe that the manager of the Tribal Knowledge Council, our prototype innovation center, will have enough savvy to recognize a great idea. Being able to categorize them is a fun experience, but it doesn't do much to encourage great ideas. You let the process proceed and watch ideas emerge. Who knows what you might get, but whatever, you need to pay attention. Over time, the CEO and his management team will be able to see these innovations as they are unfolding in the initial stages of ideation. If they pay attention, they can move an incremental innovation to a very profitable, disruptive innovation at the idea initiation stage. The ideation and action processes require considerations beyond the immediate ROI guidelines of the Tribal Knowledge Sandbox. Additional value is placed on mission relevance and knowledge acquisition. With this touchstone, we can begin to entertain a lofty objective by taking small steps and gaining knowledge at each step. Managing in this environment is a learned skill and evolves over time. We encourage CEOs to get involved with the idea process and in continually encourage new ideas so that they can grow tribal knowledge. CEOs need to be involved because it is a big source of profits and internal growth for the company. We say that managing the growth or improvement of tribal knowledge is a learned management skill, even though it isn't hard but it is something that will not become a touchstone until it is ingrained. The CEO needs to start the drumbeat of mission-relevant tribal knowledge resonating throughout the corporation. We have guided our CEOs to be leaders of the innovation parade, but that advice alone is not enough. The CEO and his whole management team need to look at improving tribal knowledge as one of their primary tribal jobs. Increasing corporate tribal knowledge that is aligned with corporate mission is a way to increase value to shareholders. We put that in bold in the book so that it draws your attention to it as you're reading down the page. This almost sounds crazy. Think about it. Why would tribal knowledge have anything to do with mission or strategy? We discovered one answer, 
when we were delivering war on waste projects. We noticed that strategy and waste were intimately connected through the value-added proposition. Strategy, according to Michael Porter, is defined to be any number of value propositions. We noted that the execution of strategy was directly reflected in the wastes that were identified in the war on waste. That logic followed like an Aristotelian syllogism. Strategy is defined by value-added propositions. Waste is anything that doesn't add value. Therefore, the identified wastes measure the efficacy of strategy. Or to put it another way, we like to say that the war on waste helps to align strategy with process. But what really is being demonstrated is the flexibility of tribal knowledge to react to market demands. Tribal knowledge reacts so that the business survives. People see a problem with a process and they fix it so that the product gets shipped. They will fix the process later. The market demands this flexibility so that the revenue stream continues. All executives and managers need to put supporting the improvement of mission-relevant tribal knowledge at the top of the list of priorities in their management program. Increasing tribal knowledge is not an initiative. It is a management responsibility. It must become a major touchstone of the management process. So how do we make this happen? How do we add this touchstone to a management structure that is burdened by too much responsibility already? In this book, We will show CEOs and their executive team that this approach to management can be easily absorbed as a non-disruptive extension of the current approach. But more importantly, we will show them why it is the most expeditious way to work in the complicated world that will be presented by future markets. It requires both extensive participation and innovation and provides a framework for employees to earn respect for their contributions. This is the end of chapter one.